Gracious Lord, help us now as we turn to the study of your word together. We ask that you might bless the preaching of your word, its proclamation, and also its hearing. Like the psalmist, we would ask that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word. Help us, guide us, lead us, use your spirit in a profound way so that our thinking would change, so that our hearts would change, and so that we would be more impressed with Jesus Christ than ever before and be able to live confidently with boldness for his glory as people of hope, as Christian people. In Jesus' name, amen. Is Jesus really the one? Is he really the one? Is he truly the deliverer? That's the perennial question. It's the question that unbelievers sometimes ask. It's the question that believers sometimes ask. Is he truly and genuinely the one I can trust? Or should I be trusting in something else or someone else? It, it's, it's the perennial question. It's the question. Is he truly the one? Lest you be ashamed of that kind of question if you're a professing Christian, which most of you are, I just remind you today that the greatest man who ever lived up until the time of Christ and his cross work asked that question. The, the, the person that Jesus is is the greatest man who ever lived. Ask the question, is Jesus really, truly the one? Or should I be looking for deliverance in someone else? So that's encouraging to us. The other amazing thing is, it served a great opportunity for Jesus to in effect say, thank you very much for asking the question. Thank you for teeing up the ball. Let me crush it now for all to see so that you don't have to keep asking the question. Luke chapter 7 is our passage. If you haven't already turned there, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Luke 7. And as a church, we're studying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. And we're in chapter 7, looking at verses 18 to 35 this morning. And we'll jump right in with that important question being asked. And if you'd look with me, you can see number one, we're going to look at the question, if you're taking notes. Number one, the question. Look at verse 18 with me where it says, the disciples or the followers of John, that would be John the Baptist, not John the disciple, not John the apostle, not the writer of the gospel according to John, but John the baptizer, reported all these things to him. All these things being all the, the different kinds of things Jesus has been doing that we've been learning about in Luke's gospel account. We just learned about it last Sunday. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus cures the incurable. Jesus teaches, teaches like no one's ever taught before. All of these profound things people are seeing, witnessing, experiencing. And here we have the response of John the Baptist and John's disciples to what Jesus has been doing. It says there, and John, verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. He sent two of his followers to Jesus saying, are you the one? 
That's our question. That's the big question. Are you the one who is to come? Are you the promised one? Or shall we look for another? It's the big giant question. And John the Baptist says, I need to send some, some men to ask him the question. Is, is Jesus the one we've been waiting for since Genesis 3? Is Jesus that one? Is Jesus the one we've been waiting for that the prophets have been talking about? Is he really the one or is he not the one? Which is pretty significant because John the Baptist has already seen Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He thought he was the one. He thought he was the one so much so that he would say, No, I'm not going to baptize you, Jesus. You should baptize me. You're greater than I am. Or or, I'm not worthy to even untie his shoes, unlace his sandals. John thought Jesus was the one. And now he's wondering, is Jesus really the one? Verse 20 says, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist, or the baptizer, has sent us to you, Jesus, saying, Are you the one who was to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Are you the, are, are you the long-anticipated Jesus? Are you the one? Now, why in the world would John be flinching? Thought he was the one? Now he's not sure if he's the one. Well, it doesn't say exactly, but it doesn't take a PhD to figure out what's going on. John had a certain idea of who Messiah should be. Uh, Messiah means anointed one. It's used for a king, deliverer. Um, Jesus is the Christ. It's the same word for Messiah. Is he the one? John had an idea of who the Messiah is and who he should be and what he should do. He, he, he was biblically literate even. He, he, he thought he knew who he should be and now he's kind of wondering if he should be. Why would he be wondering? Well, because John's circumstances, John, John's perspective on things don't exactly fit with what he thought Messiah should be doing, right? Why in the world is the Roman government still oppressing us? When Messiah comes, he's going to bring perfect righteousness and justice, just like in Isaiah 61. Why why is there still Herod? Why why aren't we free? Why aren't we enjoying all of those great things that are promised when Messiah comes? Fair enough question. I think if you were John and in his sandals, you'd be asking it too. Is is Jesus from Nazareth the Messiah or or should we be looking for someone else? By way of 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 a reach application, but I think it'll help you appreciate a little bit better. When we do wonder whether or not Jesus is really the one who's going to deliver us, It's typically tied, not always, typically tied to our looking at our circumstances and our circumstances don't match what we think God should be doing for us because we're his children. And it oftentimes, not always, leads us to say, is Jesus really the one? Doesn't feel like he's the one. Circumstantially, he doesn't look like a great deliverer. John's wondering. And it's so good that he's wondering in the sense that now Jesus has a good, extraordinary opportunity to say, thank you so much for asking. It's the million dollar question. Thank you for asking. And he will answer. Number two is the answer. If you're following some kind of outline, that would be my outline. Uh, Number two, the answer comes to the question. Verse 21, in that hour... 
In that hour, Jesus, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And you say, what kind of answer is that? They asked him a question and he didn't answer. In certain contexts, I'd say in this context, it, it, it's an even better answer than answering. He answered with action. He, he's doing messianic things. Things that the Christ is supposed to do. He, he's doing the kinds of things described in Isaiah 61 that we read. That's attributed to Jesus. That, 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 that's what's going on. Look what it says in verse 22. He, he's actually going to reference Isaiah 61. And he answered them. So he, he, he acted. He didn't just give them philosophy. He did things in verse 21. Now in 22. And he answered them. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. I just have to stop for a second and just remind you of the historicity of the Christian faith. Christianity is, is tied to, to real things that really happen. Okay? Jesus didn't just philosophize and tell them that he, had a, he has a feeling inside that he's Messiah. Uh, and based upon my feeling, and I'm sincere, I must be him. No, what he does is he acts and does things on the physical planet Earth, the same one we're still on, real time, real space, objectifiably verifiable, right? And then we hear him saying an explanation. But do notice that it does say in verse 22, what you've seen and heard. He's not saying, go back to John and tell him how I'm feeling. I'm feeling Messiah-ish. Go back and tell him about the facts, which you've seen and heard as eyewitnesses. And then he interprets it for them. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Go back and tell him what you saw, and then let Isaiah 61 come out of your mouth. I'm him. I'm most certainly, objectifiably, verifiably Him. That's what I want you to go back and tell John. That's what I want you to tell John. I'm the one proven by my actions, real actions, that I'm the one prophesied by the prophets. And just to pick a little bit on our... On our um, current vocabulary and make fun of us for just a little while to maybe make the point Jesus doesn't go back Jesus doesn't say go back and tell them that you feel that Jesus is Messiah what makes you feel Jesus is Messiah well nothing makes us feel Jesus is Messiah he is the Messiah because he did what Messiah does it's different we're not dealing with feelings. Feelings are good. But facts and feelings are different. Faith and feeling is different. You've got to trust in me because I've shown you I'm the one. Let that be a good corrective to even how we talk sometimes. I recently listened to a debate or a dialogue between... Um, I don't know if I want to call him an unbeliever or not, but someone who's teaching bad theology. Professing Christian. And someone who is promoting good, sound doctrine. 
and then the moderator. And the moderator was trying to go back and forth. And he said to the guy who's, who's teaching non-historic Christian teachings, he said, well, what makes you feel this way and what makes you feel that way? And it was so interesting. The guy, the guy promoting the bad doctrine said, nothing makes me feel that way. I'm dealing with the facts. I thought, huh, interesting. Just be careful how you talk. We're not talking about feeling certain ways. Oh, don't misunderstand. I have certain feelings. I have passionate feelings. I was emotional today when we heard from Vanit and Saya that we're partnering with them for the gospel. I was emotional when we were singing today. I'm singing so loud that I was scaring the musicians. You know, I, I was so excited about that we're trusting in Christ and his righteousness, and I'm feeling great about it. But that's based upon faith, which is confidence in facts. Go back, tell John what you saw, what you witnessed and then read Isaiah 61 to him I'm the one I'm him well that was a tangent first hour didn't even get that you guys should pay double for coming to second service or maybe get a refund I don't know but (laughs) therefore let's keep going verse 23 and blessed is the one who is not offended by me that's kind of an awkward peculiar way of making a very strong point, isn't it? That's a very negative way of saying, blessed is the one who trusts in me. But for shock value to say it a different way or for whatever reason, I don't know exactly. Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Please notice the most important thing, regardless of how he says it. The emphasis of the sentence Jesus is making is on me. Jesus is making the point, it is me. And let me tell you where all blessing comes from. Let me tell you what it means to be in the right position in life. Let me tell you the most important thing of all, period. It's what you do with Messiah. And Messiah is me, Jesus says. Most important word of that sentence, no doubt, is the word me. What truly matters about a person in the end, in the long run, is how they ask, answer the question about me, Jesus says. I like that. I like it that he doesn't leave us in the dark. I like it that he doesn't just do theological musings and answer a question with a question where you don't know the answer, actually. Let me just make it clear me he says so there's the answer now let's find interpretation he's going to give an interpretation of it he interprets it for us he interprets john for us he interprets therefore himself for us and helps us to understand he connects the dots as we like to say verse 24 says when john i'm going to call this number three the interpretation so the answer now the interpretation when john verse 24 says when john's messengers had gone jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning john let me explain John is what he's saying. Let me, let me interpret John and therefore interpret myself. Let me give you the, the, the meaning behind all this. Let's keep reading in verse 24. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
It's kind of a rhetorical question. Jesus is asking the crowds. Now remember, or I'll tell you the first time if you don't remember, but remember John was popular. There, there was a messianic expectation. There were enough people that knew that the Bible promised this guy who would come. They had promised the Messiah as well. And so when John was preaching out in the wilderness, out on, out on the outskirts of town, John the prophet, people were going out in droves. They were going out. The masses were going out and they were going out to hear him. And Jesus is reminding the people now about what they'd done. They, they did the right thing. He's affirming them. And he's saying, now, when you went out there to hear John, did, did you go out to hear, how does he say it, a reed shaken by the wind? You could take it ultra-literally and say, did you go out there for the scenery to see the reed shaken by the wind? Or you can take it more figuratively. Did you go out there to, to see a reed shaken by the wind as in John? Did you go out there to hear some spineless guy? Uh, who doesn't really have a backbone, who's out there sharing religious thoughts. And, oh, I don't know, what does that verse mean to you? And how do you feel about the coming of Messiah? You didn't go hear a guy like that when you went to go hear John. You, you, went, you went to go hear this oak of a preacher who was solid. And what did he do? He didn't share musings. He didn't say, how, how does this strike you? He said, command mode, repent. Return from your sin because the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the king is coming. Messiah is coming. You need to be sober and ready. He was that kind of preacher. He was, he was a dead serious kind of preacher. He wasn't stroke your ego kind of preacher. And you went out to hear him. You, you went out there and you not only heard him, you got baptized by him. You, you, you affirmed credibility from that guy. Let me remind you, as you're trying to think through who John is, and should we listen to John or not, and therefore should we listen to Jesus or not, let me interpret what's gone on for you. And what kind of guy did you go hear? You're short, you have a short memory. Let me, let me remind you what kind of guy you went to go hear. They all would have known what kind of guy he was. He was a no-holds-barred, repentance preacher guy. With conviction. Now keep reading. Verse 25. Still explaining John. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. That's not where you went. You, you went out into the wilderness where there are poisonous snakes and dangerous people. Robbers. Not the king's court. You went out there to hear what kind of guy? You went out there to hear a prophet. You went out there to hear a prophet to speak from God. A unique speaker from God. So he says in verse 26, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, 26 says. I tell you, and more than a prophet. Then verse 27 says, This is he. I underlined he because of what he's going to say. This is he of whom it is written... And then he quotes Malachi 3.1, the famous Italian theologian, Malachi. Okay? He quotes Malachi 3.1, a strategic Old Testament passage. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Malachi 3.1. And that's where, you know, we just 21st century, you know, you know, tell me something relevant. 
immediate audience is Jewish audience. Somewhat biblically literate, if not entirely biblically literate, to be able to understand and for Jesus to communicate with them. John is a prophet, but he's not just any prophet. He's the prophet spoken of in Malachi 3. And we know that the one spoken of in Malachi 3, we don't, but they did. But let's pretend, feel good about ourselves. We know that the one spoken of in Malachi 3 is the one who is the precursor, the forerunner, the the announcer, the one who comes right before Messiah, Christ, the long-awaited one, the one we've been waiting for since Genesis 3, the one spoken of by the other prophets. He's, He's the one, if he's that one. So by Jesus interpreting the meaning of John the Baptist, he's likewise interpreting the meaning of who he is. And if John the Baptist is the real deal, the one we've been waiting for deal, Jesus is really the one. You see? It's exciting. It's thrilling to see. John's the messenger of God. But he's not just the messenger of God. He's the final messenger of God, if he's the Malachi 3.1 prophet. Because think about it. He's the last Old Testament prophet. He's kind of a tweener, you know. He's in the New Testament, but we refer to him as Old Testament. He's the last one. So Isaiah, speaking of him, But he didn't actually see him. He's actually going to see him. He's the last one. And if he really is that last one, then Jesus really is the one. Here's an interesting observation that I learned this week. And it's the connection between the wording of Malachi 3 and the wording of Exodus. Exodus 23 as well as some other passages in Exodus. And in Exodus 23, you've got the Exodus. You've got the angel of the Lord going before. And many people draw the connection and the correlation. Similar verbiage, similar wording. It sounds the same. The Malachi 3 passage. The Malachi 3 passage anticipating the ultimate Exodus. The ultimate deliverance. Talk to a Jewish person who knows anything about Jewish history and you say, what, what, tell me the three most important events in all of the Old Testament. In all of, all of your scriptures. And it's not going to take very long for them to say, Exodus. God delivering. And it seems that there's on purpose a similar wording here. We're waiting for the ultimate Exodus. An ultimate exodus is ultimate deliverance that will come through Messiah. Someone writes this. This passage speaks of the angel of the Lord, Exodus 23, 20, going before the people, following the cloud men, embracing God's protection, while failure to follow resulted in judgment. John goes before Jesus, says, listen to him. Repent, get ready. Then it says in verse 28 in our passage, I tell you, Jesus says, note the the weightiness and the seriousness of it, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. 
greatest man in the whole Bible, greatest man in the world up until the finished work of Christ. There's a good little piece of Bible trivia for you. It's not Moses. It's not Abraham. It's not Ezekiel. It's not Daniel. John the Baptist? You mean the guy that wore the funny clothes? The guy you wouldn't invite to a party? Because he would just yell at people. Smelled funny. Didn't have very good social skills. John the, the greatest man in the whole Bible? The greatest man to ever live? Not just recorded in the Bible? Well, that's what Jesus says. No one greater than John. I liked what Phil Riken said about this. He said, the other prophets all looked for the Savior from a distance, but John saw them with his own two eyes. That seems to be the meaning behind what Jesus is getting at. He, he, he's the greatest because even those other great, great people of God, they didn't actually see him. They weren't the final announcers to, to actually announce him coming. It's, it's different. It's unique. I mean, it's one thing to be... Uh, 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 anticipating, but it's a whole other story to be experiencing, which is what comes in verse 28. Gotta love verse 28. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's intriguing. But that goes to that point. John experienced in a way that Isaiah didn't experience. But even a baby Christian who's immature in the faith, been a Christian five, year, five, five minutes, is in a certain sense greater than John the Baptist, who saw Jesus with his own eyes. I couldn't make that up. <laughs> Why? Because you understand the fullness of the story. You understand the fullness of the historical account. You understand that Jesus not only came as Messiah, but you understand that he came and he fulfilled the law perfectly by everything that he did. You understand that he went to Calvary. You understand that he went there atoning for our sins. You understand that he was raised from the dead bodily. You understand that he ascended and he said, as you see me go, I will come. You, you, you understand in a way that John and his disciples were scratching their head about. And in that sense, it makes every single one of us in this room greater than John the Baptist. And he's called the greatest ever. And it's not meant to feed our egos. Not the point at all. The point is, we see the whole thing. We grasp the whole thing. Again, someone, I, I basically just said it, but to quote someone else so it sounds more sophisticated. Yet even the newest, weakest Christian is greater than John. How fascinating. And now think about how this is an interpretation. If John is the significant one when it comes to prophets, and he's announcing, he's the forerunner, he's the promoter of Jesus... It makes Jesus the significant one. He's it. Jesus, are you the one? John the Baptist being the Malachi 3 one proves that I am the ultimate one. I'm glad John the Baptist sent people to ask the question. It bolsters our faith and confidence in Christ. Let's move on now to the next portion 
And we're going to see different responses. I'm going to call this number four, contrasting responses to Jesus' interpretation. Verse 29 says, when, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, I love that, it makes me smirk. When all the people heard this, and let's just select out a particular important group, <laughs> and the tax collectors too, the total scumballs. Okay, I mean, really. They hated among the Jews. So I picked a nice word when I said scumballs. And even those guys, dregs of society, they declared God just. They, de they declared God righteous. He, they declared God true, worthy, righteous, just. Some of your translations say they justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. What, 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 is he, what is he getting at there? When the people heard Jesus interpreting the facts, this is who John is, this is who I am, it's making sense to them. It's making sense to them. Even the tax collectors, the, the, the really bad guys that everybody knows are bad, even though everybody already is bad, they, they, we, we all know it from them. And, and, and what did it cause them to do? Jesus, when you explain John and you explain yourself to us, it causes us to justify God. It causes us to acknowledge the justice of God, the rightness of God, the righteousness of God. God is right. He's right in sending John saying, repent, you lawbreakers. Oh, no wonder he mentions the tax collector because they of all people knew that they were. When you explain things like this to us, Jesus, it causes us to praise God. Oh, now, perhaps we, perhaps we, we, were, we were making some sense of going to John and going to hear about this guy preaching, and, and it made some sense, and, and we went out to him, and we, we, we had him baptize us. And, 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 but you know what? Now, now it really makes sense. When you explain things the way you explain things to us, we say, God, you're right. John the Baptist is the forerunner. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. He's trustworthy. God, 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 you're right. That's the right response. Then verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers, uh, experts in the, in the Old Testament law, not like lawyers that we would think, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the, the, usually Jesus accuses them of being self-righteous, um, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. We're going we're gonna to think about that for a moment. We're the good people. John has a baptism of repentance for bad people, lawbreakers, we have a conflict on our calendar that day. We have more important things to do than to go out into the wilderness and be baptized, a ceremonial religious washing that's done in association with saying, I'm a bad person, I'm a sinner, and I better get right with God before Messiah shows up. And the Pharisees and the experts in the law were the good people. So they're going to reject John. They already have. 
And if you're going to reject John, you're going to reject Jesus. Because if you don't need repentance, you don't need atonement. You don't need Jesus. You don't need his law-keeping righteousness because you're a law-keeper yourself. Regardless of what your wife and kids know to be true. See, what happens is, what happens today even, in a little bit different way, we think the law of God is here. When the law of God is here, we lower the law of God as doable. We don't really need Jesus then. We certainly don't need John. Just I, I know I'm a broken record, but let me just remind you what the law of God says. To make it really simple. Love God. And you say, well, I do that. Really? It's one of our biggest mistakes. That we don't help people graciously, yes, kindly. We don't help people see the law of God for what it is. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every ounce of your being, perfect motives, all of the time. Treat him like he's the perfect God that he is. Oh, I don't, I don't do that. You don't love God. The way he prescribes. Now, when I look at your life and I see what you've done in public and I go, well, I, I love God more than she does or he does. And then you see me and you're like, well, you know, I saw him do the wrong thing one time. And so I love God because I do the right thing better than Pat does. But see, that's not the law of God. Do better than somebody else. Love me. Old Testament teaches it. New Testament teaches it. Love me with all that you are. Just treat me like I'm God. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus teaches. And then the Old Testament and the New Testament says no one does it. And we, like the Pharisees and the law experts, take the law and lower it. I'm a good person. I love God. No, you don't. Or Jesus is a liar. And so are all the prophets. And so is God. So is Moses. So is Abraham. We're lawbreakers. If you see you're a lawbreaker, you'll say, that John the Baptist, man, he was a hardliner. But when he said, repent... I get it because I know I need to repent. And Jesus, when he comes and he's going to give himself up for us as a ransom, as an atoning sacrifice, you know what? I need to listen to him too because I'm a lawbreaker. And now you're like the tax collectors and you justify God. You say, God, you're right. <laughs> you're totally right. And so I like John as much as he boxes my ears. And I like Jesus even better because he fulfills the law. Notice when Jesus interprets things for us, you've got these guys saying, God is good and right, even in telling us we're wrong through some crazy guy named John. And you know what? Over here, the Pharisees, isn't it haunting the way it says it? Back to verse 30. They reject the purpose of God for themselves. That is just awful. 
that is something I want to trouble you and to stir your heart and God help it to do that even now. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. I'm a good person. Translation. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Why do I keep bringing that up? Because those are the kind of people that wouldn't go listen to John. Those are the kind of people that don't ultimately see a need for Jesus. But make no mistake about it, Jesus says they reject the purpose of God for them. so important we think about these things. So tragic. So easy to beat up on these guys. Yeah, those Pharisees, man, they're a bunch of slackers and losers. Well, how would you describe yourself? How are you going to describe yourself if you could at your funeral? Where nine times out of ten, the resounding chorus is, he or she was a good person. Translation, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Let's not do that. Let's learn. Let's learn from Jesus. We need a good Savior because we're not good people. That's why John is so helpful. That's why the contrasting responses are so different and troubling. Now let's move on. It's number five on my outline, the evaluation of the rejectors. Jesus evaluates the rejectors, and we're going to look at verses 31 and following. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? A rhetorical way of saying, fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> Somebody called this the parable of the brats. Okay? Let me tell you a little parable about some snot-nosed kids who are brats. Um, and let me then connect the dots for you. Uh, verse 32 says, this generation, he's speaking of this, this unbelief uh, plaguing these pharisaical types. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Apparently something that was a common saying or these are common sayings put together from the ancient world. But the, the one thing that's not very hard to be able to see uh, with a little bit of thinking, kids play dress up, kids imitate parents. You know, my kids put on pirate costumes and dress up like Pirates of the Caribbean or Batman or Superman. Even last night, one of my little kids, uh, boys out of the shower, he goes, look, Dad, look, I got the Superman thing. <laughs> a little, <laughs> anyway. No movies. No su- superheroes. But like our kids, they want to be like big people. They want to be like adults. And what are two major events in life? Not saving Gotham City. Two major events in life would be, would be weddings. The biggest, most amazing, most fun you're going to have party. 
where there's joy and rejoicing and you can overeat. It's not gluttony. It's called feasting. There's a biblical word for it. There's a biblical allowance. It's good and right for the glory of God. Feasting, if it was only every day, but then it would be gluttony. But anyway, it's exciting. And, and so let's play wedding. And the, Or the other side is, what's another major event that really makes an impression on you that you really can't get out of your mind? Well, there's also singing, weeping. It's a funeral. And the kids would play either or. Neither one really satisfying. But kids would play both. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to liken this generation to, to, to kids, fickle kids. Verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread, strange diet, and drinking no wine. We learned in chapter 1, verse 15, about the vow that he took, some sort of Nazarite-ish, even if it's not... a formerly a Nazarite vow, some Nazarite-ish vow, so he's not going to drink alcohol. And you say, he has a demon. John the Baptist is like the, the funeral dirge preacher. He's an ascetic, meaning, you know what, he doesn't dress like the rest of us. He wears camel hair, and it's not even comfortable because somehow that makes him more committed. And, and he's not going to eat normal people food. If you did invite him over to your house, he's just going to insult you and say, I don't eat that kind of food. I'm a prophet. He's the strange guy. He's not the normal guy. He's not the normal believing Jew guy. He's the extraordinarily odd one, which is pretty normal for prophets. Not normal for believers, but normal for prophets. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Fickly, you didn't like him. You say, he has a demon. He's too negative. He's, he's a fundamentalist. You know, I mean, I don't know how we would say it. He's too conservative. It's always wrath, 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 you know? Repent, 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 repent. I don't really, that doesn't really settle very well with me. You know, I think he emphasizes law too much. I need more gospel in my life. Maybe it would be how we would put it. Then, by way of contrast, verse 34, the Son of Man, that Old Testament title for Messiah, for deliverer, for king, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. He's not an ascetic. He's not like John the Baptist. He didn't take a, a vow of abstinence to never drink alcohol. He didn't say he was going to eat weird food and dress weird. No, he came eating and drinking like everybody else is the idea. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. <gasps> Did you hear about Jesus? He went to a party and there were unbelievers there. And I saw him eating what they were eating. <gasps> I saw him drinking. That Jesus is bad. I reject him on good moral principles. Because I think he's far too left. And I think, you know what he needs? He needs a good dose of law. Because, we, you know, we're, 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 we're seeing him emphasizing grace too much. You were know, the same people who were overdoing the opposite with John the Baptist. The problem isn't with John the Baptist. The problem isn't with Jesus. The problem is... with them coming up with any excuse necessary to keep them from embracing Jesus who John was pointing to as the one behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world 
And Jesus is just taking their hearts and exposing them for what they are. You don't like the conservative, quote, unquote. You don't like the liberal, quote, unquote. Now, neither is true, right? John the Baptist didn't just preach law. He preached grace, too. The sin, he takes away the sin of the world, right? And Jesus, if anybody preached law, Jesus preached law. And he certainly emphasized grace as well. Those are just over, over um, statements, characterizations, caricatures. But Jesus uses it as an opportunity to say the problem is not with the prophet. The problem is not with the Messiah. The problem is with you. And stop and think with this, about this with me. And how, how true this is, not just for that generation, but for any generation of unbelievers, let's say. They can look at the facts and they can hear the evidence and they can see and hear from my witnesses. And if you want to come up with an excuse, what? You'll come up with an excuse. It's the human heart. Jesus is exposing their human hearts. As sinful. Phil Riken again said, They were offended that Jesus was a friend of sinners, since they did not think that they were sinners. Jesus was no friend of theirs. If you never want to be satisfied, you never will be satisfied, which is a heart condition. And that's what's happening here. And it's tragic. Finally, if you look with me at verse 35, it says, quoting Jesus, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Maybe an easy saying um, that Jesus is quoting, maybe not so easy to understand, but just with a little bit of effort, if you just engage with me just for a few more moments, I think we can understand what he's getting at. Wisdom is justified by all her children. So you're going to have rejection, rejection. Oh, wait a second. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Remember earlier, they justified God. They said God is right. Wisdom is proven, authentic, genuine, right. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom seems to be, based upon 29 and 30, another way of saying the purpose of God. You could even oversimplify it and just say, insert the word God. God is justified by all her children. God is shown to be right by all her children. The purpose of God in Christ, better yet, the purpose of God in Christ, which is another way of saying wisdom, is justified, shown to be right by all her children. Children, let's use another synonym for clarity's sake, fruit. There might be a rejection from naysayers here. Rejection from naysayers here. But let's make one thing clear, Jesus says. What's right and true will come forth from its fruit. And what's right and true are the purposes of God in John the Baptist and the purposes of God ultimately, more importantly, in Christ Jesus as as, uh, salvation secure. Maybe we could put it another way. We'll see who's right here. And you know who's going to be right? 
the one who has all of the fruit bearing, the one who has all of the children produced, the one who is going to have redemption secured by the one who will go to the cross. Jesus knows he's going there. Jesus knows he's going to be raised from the dead. Jesus knows he's going to ascend. Jesus knows he's going to return. Jesus knows he's going to commission the disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations to the point where the book of Revelation says there are more people who are redeemed than you can count. He likens them to the sands of the seashore. In the long run, you know what? Wisdom will be proven. Wisdom will be shown. The plan and purpose of God will be shown and demonstrated as right, righteous, justified by its children. These naysayers are not the winners. The people who reject the purposes of God. Not at all. I'm really thankful that we as a church are able to, to come face to face with a, a historical record like this of Jesus, who we say we worship as the risen Christ. In a sense, it's the same old story. In another sense, we're able to see Christ from this angle and from this angle and from this angle and from this angle and it just seems to be better and better because we understand more and more. And God is using that. God uses that to help us to see Him for who He really is. God uses it to help us to grow spiritually. God uses it in your life if you're not a Christian, even to, to grant saving faith as you hear the truth about Christ. It just makes me eager. It makes me eager for more. How, how else can I understand Jesus better? And my prayer is that, that it makes you eager too and say, you know what, I, I, I guess when I read it, I, I, I knew all this before, but it helps me to read it even better and it helps me to know who Jesus is and it helps me to have my faith in Christ bolstered, to know that the objections that I hear today really are no new objections, to see the wisdom of God in Christ. I, ho I, I, I hope you're either uh, you know, a tenth as thrilled as I am I hope you're ten times as thrilled as I am. Loving Christ for who He is and what He's done, we wait for Him to come back. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the extraordinary privilege that is ours as a church. Thank You that we're able to learn more about our great Savior. We confess before You that we forget a lot. And we forget a lot, a lot about how great Jesus is. And, and so we're grateful today to even be able to acknowledge Your wisdom and, and having us not live our Christian lives alone, that we are called to gather like this, at least this unique time once a week where we can be reminded and where we can testify of God and His faithfulness and hear the preaching of the Word and responding with musical worship and giving and fellowship together and gospel proclamation. These are great gifts You've given to us. Impress us even still more in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.